0: From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's forward thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. Michael, looking at new challenges we face in the energy arena, so the invasion of Ukraine, the spike in inflation, worries about energy supply chains, are you more or less optimistic about the net zero transition? You know, if I'm being honest, I'm not sure whether or not we'll get to the one and a half degree target that, you know, some people have put out there. Nevertheless, there are some optimistic signs about diversifying away from fossil fuels. Well in Europe at least, our our guest is very much in the optimistic camp. I mean she looks at the recent disruptions and thinks it's going to accelerate our progress. Well I very much look forward to listening in on this conversation. Anne Mettler is Vice President Europe at Breakthrough Energy. She works on clean tech innovation in pursuit of a net zero emissions future. Before her current role, she worked for many years in European public policy. She was head of the European Political Strategy Centre, which is the in-house think tank of the European Commission, from 2014 to 2019. Welcome to the podcast, Anne.
1: It's great to be there. Thank you for having me, Janet.
0: You're very welcome. So listen, we always like our listeners to know a little bit about you, where you came from, your childhood, where you were educated, and how did you end up in public policy?
1: Yeah, it's a a long story. So let me say, just in terms of my background, I'm a quintessential European. I have a German father, a Swedish mom. I was born in Sweden, but raised in Germany, and I'm a child of the 70s. So my, my dream was always to study in the United States. That wasn't very easy in the early 1990s. So I decided to sort of take a shortcut and actually begin my studies at the American College in Greece. So um, so I moved uh, to Athens, I was 19, studied there for two years, studied business. I thought at the time I wanted to study business, but then realized um, I actually wanted to study political science. And then I managed to get a scholarship at the University of New Mexico. So I moved from Athens to Albuquerque and New Mexico, where I then first received a bachelor's and then a master's degree. I really wanted to move to Washington, D.C. and really experience politics. So I um, I did that. I just packed my bags and moved to D.C. I got very, very lucky in the sense that I ended up working for Senator John Glenn and, and former astronaut. And that year in Washington, D.C. was really very transformative uh, for me because, A, I got to really experience public policy, you know, in, in a way that I just hadn't. But it also really gave me the urge to want to go back to Europe. So I moved to Bonn, Germany. For a year, I got my second master's. And then bizarrely, I actually ended up moving to Switzerland. I got a very attractive job offer at the World Economic Forum. I started out in the North America team, but then was made that at the time, the youngest director ever in charge of the Europe department. So it was an incredible opportunity. By then, I was sort of in my early thirties and my, my, really my lifelong dream. And I consider myself really an entrepreneur at heart was to run my own organization. So I quit my job after a few years and decided that I was going to co found a think tank in Brussels. It's called the Lisbon Council. The sort of the slogan was making Europe fit for the future. So I've always thought a lot about preparing Europe for the future. And I ran the think tank for 11 years until I was approached by the team that uh, supported the new incoming president of the European Commission back in 2019. Jean-Claude Duca asked me if I wanted to run the European Political Strategy Center, uh, the in-house think tank. I became um, a director general in the European Commission, so really came in from the outside right at the the highest level. It was really quite daunting, I have to say, but I was very glad to to serve the entire term of uh, five years. And uh, towards the end of that time, I was approached by the private office of of Bill Gates to see if I wanted to open up an office in Europe for them to work on energy and climate change, which, as you know, Bill Gates very much cares about and really was looking to Europe as a best practice in climate policy and an energy transition. So I decided to accept that offer.
0: Well, it's very interesting that you worked in Europe when the large enlargement happened and our Eastern European neighbors came into the European Union. Looking back, it was challenging at the time. How do you see it now?
1: Honestly, the moment, uh, you know, with the Big Bang enlargement was a moment just so ripe with opportunity. We thought a democracy had prevailed, and now this was going to be a foremost governance system that the entire world would embrace. And I think today we're in a very different uh, spot. I think, you know, public policy is probably always very intense, but I feel like we are just living through changes that are so profound that sometimes it can be really difficult to even wrap your minds around it. And it was difficult at the time to always understand what is on the horizon. And I won't lie about it. It was oftentimes unsettling because we didn't like a lot of what we saw coming. So
0: talking about big issues and uncertainty, you are now engaged in the business of climate change, sustainability, clean tech. That has to be the biggest challenge for all of us.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and this is maybe one thing to say that Towards the end of my time at the Commission, so this would have been 19, or I'm sorry, 2018, 2019, it was very evident for me that at least with regards to the EU, that the energy transition was going to be the biggest thing going forward. And, you know, I wanted with all my heart, I really wanted to help Europe to succeed in this clean tech revolution. And I say it as someone who accompanied Europe pretty much from the very beginning of sort of the the internet to to now and seeing how Europe just fell further and further behind when it came to digital technologies.
0: So listen, just tell our listeners about Breakthrough Energy, what you're doing.
1: Yeah, so Breakthrough Energies is a really an extremely eclectic and interesting organization. It's very much sort of a brainchild of, of Bill Gates because it is about in investment and uh, not investment in a traditional sense, so with a sort of a return on investment, a frame of mind. But the investment thesis is very much centered around the climate impact. So, you know, the, the technologies that we invest in what is their potential at scale? And we will only invest if we believe uh, that it has the potential to reduce uh, CO2 emissions by half a gigaton uh, a year. So it's, it's, a, it's a very high threshold for an investment. So it's investment, but done differently. Number two, it's also philanthropy, right? You asked about my job. So when I look at Europe, the, the, you know what Europe needs is perhaps not so much. Just a focus on climate, because broadly speaking, Europe gets this. However, where Europe lacks is in the innovation ecosystem. It's essentially in not only developing these technologies, but but deploying them at scale. So a lot of our philanthropy is actually focused on the innovation ecosystem, right? Then I would say that the third element is really very centered around public policy, because in energy, you don't lift a finger without having to focus on what's the regulatory and public policy environment. So coming back to my own work, we are sort of a microcosm of the larger organization in the United States, but also very focused on the particular challenges that Europe has. And as I said, in Europe, broadly speaking, there's consensus that climate change is real. We have very ambitious targets. We have, you know, a climate law. All of that is in place, but we really need to shore up our performance when it comes to scaling up these technologies. And and this is what I'm committed to, to do.
0: What are the shortcomings of the ecosystem, the technological ecosystem in Europe that is needed to make this happen?
1: It there isn't. I, I wish there was just one. I mean, but broadly speaking, um, if you look at an innovation cycle, it goes from from development, right, uh, to deployment, scaling up, and Europe is very strong in the early stages of the innovation cycle, and that's a real strength. Huh? I mean, so really, breakthrough innovations, technologies will come out of Europe. Where where things then go astray is a little bit beyond the R&D phase, right? So this is, you know, we're we're getting better at uh, producing promising startups, but where then things really break down is in the scaling up. So Europe does not have a great uh, track record in helping young companies to grow big. And that is becoming a problem, you know. And so it's really very much around the deployment of the technology rather than just the development and that's what i spend a lot of my time on you know the other i would say more recently that europe has also lost some leadership in manufacturing frankly i mean it's um i'm very concerned if i can say that right now about the wind industry uh, because you know that europe stood up the solar industry and lost that and europe also helped stand up um, the wind industry including offshore wind and I worry that we are sleepwalking into a situation where we will lose the wind industry as well. So that's problematic. I think that uh, we, we really need to have this on, on our radar screen.
0: Yes, I mean, you, you talked about Europe's opportunity in clean tech, the commitments there, the opportunity was there. Do you think that the opportunity is lost or can it be regained?
1: It's not lost. Nothing's ever lost, you know. And Europe will always have sort of uh, niche areas where it can be strong. But broadly speaking, and if I look now on the other side of the Atlantic, and the quite how shall I say <laughs> transformative changes that have been brought about by the Inflation Reduction Act, which really has put the U.S. on uh, sort of um, on the um, clean tech um, agenda in, uh, in a very short period of time then I worry that that Europe is, is not necessarily you know maybe losing ground but others are getting faster. Do you understand because we're not standing still and this is one thing that I realize in, you know comparing to when I started my job uh, back in early 2020 Europe was really sort of a leader but that was before every other geography got into the clean tech game right my point is the entire world is looking right now how can how can i get a piece of this pie so it's not necessarily that europe is 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 falling behind so much that that, that others are going faster and are being more ambitious and and this is you know what we're trying to uh, trying to remedy
0: what is it about europe that makes it so slow at things
1: It is slow, uh, but I will also say when it does move, it's a little bit like a tanker, right? It it won't move fast, but when it does move, it is palpable. And uh, so I always want to give the EU the benefit of the doubt. It is cumbersome, it is slow, but I I believe we need to find the solutions within the system.
0: So when you look at the innovation that is happening in Europe, what most excites you? Give us some examples.
1: There are amazing startups uh, in Europe. I mean, this is, I said before that clean tech plays to Europe's strength. We have a very strong industrial base. We have deep expertise in deep tech and engineering. We have a lot of entrepreneurs who really Worry about climate change. They're really dedicated. So there isn't one sort of innovation that I am excited about. It's more sort of the nascent, you know, ecosystem around uh, these technologies and, you know, that I am trying to strengthen by connecting the startups at the technology frontier with bigger corporate players. This is what I consider my job. However I will also say and I thought a lot about sort of what kind of innovation Europe needs I think we are too stuck with a sort of a, an intellectual paradigm that that looks at uh, innovation and clean tech as if we were developing sort of a new a new iPhone it's that's not the case you know I mean if I look at what kind of innovation Europe needs it can be much more around speeding up certain developments right So how do I speed up processes? How do I deploy technology faster through process innovation? You know, how do I, what kind of innovation do I need to be able to mass manufacture again? Also using sort of the same standards and thereby accelerate the deployment of a technology. So the point that I'm making, um, what I'm learning about cleantech is that oftentimes because the innovation is so undifferentiated, that we we need to take a different path than we sometimes do in other areas of innovation. What do I mean with that? So for instance, if you you fly on an airplane that flies with sustainable aviation fuels, it won't palpably feel different than if you fly on an airplane with kerosene. So you won't have the typical sort of user experience, right? That underpins an innovation, a product innovation. But you will have a much more expensive airplane ticket, right? So an innovation can be, how do we manage to increase the scale to bring down the cost, what Bill Gates calls the green premium? That can be an innovation too. So I'm trying to sort of steer the debate more into what kind of innovation do we need so, so that we get out of our sort of paradigm that an innovation always needs to be a new product. And are you making progress on that front? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we're seeing now that permitting, uh, speeding up permitting, has become a major issue. We're seeing that uh, policy levers that can be uh, deployed to reduce the cost of clean energies, such as what's called carbon contracts for difference. So this is where the government pays the difference between a CO2-intensive product versus a, a clean product, right? So that you start using the clean product. So carbon contracts were different. There are some exciting developments in Germany. So yes, I mean the next really the next frontier here is to is to bring back some manufacturing capacity, but still it's it's still too slow. It doesn't scale fast enough. So this is where really you know from a public policy perspective, we need to focus in on the the speed, the scale, right? The simplicity also of, you know, that, that these regulations have to speak to companies so that they have confidence in investing. So, this is what I would be focusing on if I was still in my old job.
0: The three S's, very important. So, putting all of this into the context of a more fractured world, a more contested world, a less certain world, a world with inflation for the first time in 20 years, and the rest of it, a world with Russia in Ukraine. How does this impact the chances of clean tech and, in general, the net zero transition unfolding as it should
1: I mean, my prediction is uh, that it will accelerate the energy transition. And at least here in Europe, when natural gas became weaponized by Russia against us, it was very clear that we would have an urgency to get off fossil energy and natural gas in particular that, that we had never felt before. And that, uh, you know, I wanted to use that opportunity and really, really, really um, use it to accelerate the energy transition. Because, I mean, honestly, if you between the the urgency of climate change and the urgency of a war that is, you know, that is based on the weaponization of energy, if you cannot muster the resolve to really, uh, you know, speed things up then, then I don't know if you if you ever can. So, so I was at the time, and I continue to be optimistic that it will accelerate the energy transition away from fossil energy. But as you said, I think there's no consensus, global consensus around it. And so the question is, what you know, what do we do about this? I personally believe that climate action has always been plagued by um, a collective action problem, that those that sort of, Moved ahead, the fastest thought that, uh, you know, that uh, if others don't pull along, that it is uh, too much of a risk. I think that perception is changing now um, and that essentially now that energy has become a security issue, that um, sort of prioritizing and what I call energy resilience will become an overriding policy focus. And I think that at least in Europe and the United States, that's been understood. It's very
0: interesting that MGI did some work called The Complication of Concentration in Global Trade. And it shows that um, many countries source what they need from a very, very small number of trading partners. And we're seeing um, that changing because people know that they have to diversify for resilience. But we're also seeing, in some cases, new oil licences being uh, granted new coal-fired power stations being built in different parts of the world. So there's an element of going back to fossil fuels at the same time as forging ahead with clean energy.
1: Yes, I, I, um, I don't uh, dispute that, which is why I believe our approach is so important. Because essentially, unless you can make a business case that the clean energy is the better energy, I think this is going to be exceedingly difficult, right? And for instance, the renewables have now proven themselves. They're cost competitive. They're cheaper than fossil energy. And this is the promise of standing up a new generation of clean technologies, right? I mean, because imagine how much less hope we would have today if we didn't have renewables, right? If we didn't have wind, solar, if we didn't have batteries, but also how much more hope the world would have if we had green hydrogen at scale. If we had sustainable fuels, if we had carbon dioxide removal technologies, if we had long duration energy storage, you know, if we had geothermal at scale. So so my point is we really from a policy perspective, my recommendation is focus on the business case, make it profitable, yeah? to do the clean energy business. And then essentially things will fall into place. But it needs, we don't have time. We, you know, climate change is a reality. So, you know, with wind and solar, it took 40 years. What took 40 years in the past, we now need to do this decade. So it's a tall order, right? It's interesting. A previous
0: podcast guest was Claire O'Neill, who was the British representative at COP in Glasgow. And she said it was interesting that In the final communique, business wasn't even mentioned. The word business did not appear. But is it business really that is going to make the change?
1: I don't think we can bring about the desired change without business. So it's not, you know, sufficient on its own. I will also say that business is not some homogeneous lump, right? I mean, business is very, you know, it's, 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 it's a lot of a multitude of actors. What I have been focusing on recently is more sort of at the interplay of large industry players and startups at the technology frontier. I think this is not sufficiently explored um, because energy, especially energy. Um, and I hope no one will take offense, but on balance, energy is an innovation-poor sector. What one must, in fairness, say, energy has never been told to, to be very innovative. The, the goal of energy was be cheap and be reliable. And broadly speaking, that's what was supplied, right? I mean, this is what we got. Now we have all sorts of expectations in the energy sector on what they should do and uh, And this is why I'm saying bringing them together with these startups that are working on these breakthrough innovations and breakthrough technologies is really a fruitful way of going about. And um, what I learned, and it's anecdotal, so uh, but I know that, for instance, in China, that big corporations um, get subsidies from the government to work closely with startups and then they take these breakthrough innovations and uh, and uh, technologies and bring them back into the big company which of course has global value chains has just capacities that a small business doesn't have um i think we need to understand better how we can bring sort of the innovative prowess in these young companies into the bigger companies, and then help them to jointly scale the technologies and bring the innovations to market. I know that in Europe, this has not been sufficiently sufficiently explored. It has not been sufficiently incentivized. Uh, So oftentimes, let's be very clear about this, when we talk about business, we talk about economic industry incumbents more often than not, they are not the ones at the technology frontier, right? Uh, They are often the ones that feel very threatened by new technologies. They fear the disruption that innovation brings. So I think we need to be more nuanced in our approach to business. We can't do it without them, but we must sure that we really bring the totality of business, and here in particular those that are at the technology frontier, really around the table. It's exactly
0: the same in biotech, by the way. The same thing as in clean tech. There's a lot of innovation in Europe. You can't scale it. You can't commercialize it. There isn't an
1: ecosystem. Same thing what it uh, i mean the best example of that is biontech right uh, which uh, developed uh, the uh, mrna vaccine but essentially couldn't couldn't manufacture mass manufacture it uh, which is how they ended up collaborating with pfizer right i mean so so yeah i mean but this is what i'm saying and here we it was incentivized we understood what are the strengths of each player and brought them together in conducive ways why can this not be done in energy are you seeing movement on that front in Europe and in the US? In the US, yes. And what I, one thing that I really like about the IRA is it does not discriminate. So you deploy the technology, you will get your tax credit. In Europe, uh, this is, uh, you know, I mean, the, the subsidies are at the European level handed out through what are called the Ipsi's Important Projects of Common European Interests. More often than not, these are big industry players. There's a really sort of lengthy process to qualify, etc. I don't experience per se that the environment for clean tech startups is super empowering uh, in Europe. That they have the same access to subsidies or to public policy, for that matter. So I think we, I mean, we really stand to improve here. And as I said. This is not only about the startups this is really about this interplay really bringing the right actors together so that we can deploy because i mean let's face it you have a new company a sort of an exciting startup in a, let's say a low carbon cement or so until they can really rival the four to six global companies that dominate the cement market it will take at a minimum a decade if not more right i mean so so we need to think creatively how do how do we do this in a uh, you know in a much more fruitful way? And there should be a lot of opportunity in Europe because we have a lot of big global industry players, right? I mean, so we have what we need. We have the startups. We have those players, but we have no systems to to bring them together and to really sort of create meaningful projects um, that have the policy support, the focus. Also, you know, from from a de-risking perspective. So that they can then deploy the technology and scale faster much faster than they otherwise would.
0: So beyond the system point which I absolutely see, is there enough money going into clean tech?
1: overall And there's obviously never enough money right but uh, probably um, not um, if you if you um, so I'll give you an example if I, um, if I look at Europe see Europe, Since the beginning of the war, European governments have uh, subsidized the continued use of fossil energy to the tune of 600 billion euros. We have a project that we call the Energy Resilience Leadership Group. There's a fabulous um, company um, that has come out of X, the Google Accelerator, that does um, long-duration energy storage in um, in in sort of coal mines. And they need about... 2 billion to to you know to deploy this technology 2 billion sounds like an unbelievable amount of money right and it is it is for an individual startup right but then if you compare that to the 600 billion it's, it's a drop in the bucket, right? I mean, so what I'm missing is sort of really sort of a master plan being much more strategic. Of course, we had, to, we were in a complete crisis situation, a panic situation in Europe. You really can't say it any other way after the war started and we were looking at a winter with real distress. So I get it, you know, but now we're in year two of the war. We need to start shifting away and really deploying. A lot more money into uh, into these uh, emerging clean technologies. It's just a fact that it costs a lot of money, and uh, that these uh, you know individual companies, it's too much of a risk, including for a lot of investors. So we need to think of ways that we can socialize these risks, right? Because honestly, especially in this summer where we've had uh, you know the the a lot of extreme weather events. However much this will cost, you know, the cost will pale in comparison to what these extreme weather events will cost over time. So, as I said, it's never enough money uh, and we need to deploy that money in a much smarter way than I think we have done to date. What do you mean by socialize the risks? That means that right now that if you're an investor and you're, you know, you you come across a very um, promising clean technologies, you shoulder a lot of that risk, right? I mean, um, so... And then this is without any sort of um, understanding. Is there a market on the other side of this? Will I really be making money? When will I be making money? That's what I'm saying. If you have a traditional return on investment sort of, of perspective a lot of these technologies continue to be very risky. And this is where governments need to step in and in fairness do step in and try to de-risk. But it's really, it's too slow moving. I mean, I remember when I started my job and I saw that Europe was really doubling down on uh, renewables, which of course is completely laudable. And But I'm like, how is this supposed to work without long duration energy storage? Because both wind and solar are an intermet- intermittent uh Uh, sources of energy so what do you do if there's no no wind and there's no sun so but back then at least long duration energy storage was was not on the radar screen at all i mean i remember talking you know to 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 counter previous colleagues and saying we need targets we need funds we need to make this a big policy priority now we're getting there but it's it's a you know it's it's pretty slow moving I have to say all things considered and the same on green hydrogen. I mean we've spoken so much about green hydrogen but it's not really deploying. You know there's not really a market. No one's really buying it. So we really need a reality check and not just have ever more, you know, ambitious targets but really looking at what are the final investment decisions? Is anyone buying these clean technologies, you know? And is there real demand? Is because without that, you know, only these, the clean technologies that are actually being used will decarbonize, right? I mean, it's just something that exists in a lab. At the end of the day, it won't really make a difference. What
0: do you think would unlock the potential of green hydrogen and who will
1: unlock it? yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> the, what I learned about green hydrogen is it's 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 more complicated than, let's say, batteries, right? Because I was part of the team that put together the European Battery Alliance and sort of building a battery value chain, honestly, is, is peanuts compared to green hydrogen. Because with green hydrogen, you're talking sort of system change. Um, and uh, and that's always extremely uh, difficult to do. So first of all, I think what no one really realized is that... Uh, in order to have the green hydrogen, you need abundant and, uh, and cheap uh, renewable power, right, which only exists in very few places in Europe, so mostly in northern Sweden and the Nordics more broadly uh, because of wind and hydropower, and then in the Iberian Peninsula because of sun and, and wind, right? So if you've been really slow in the rollout of your renewables, chances are you're not going to be a leader in the production of green hydrogen. Uh, Then you need electrolyzers, which is a very nascent industry. You know, can we produce these electrolyzers at scale and at an affordable cost? You know, also big question mark. But that being said, we have great companies in Europe. Then you need to transport green hydrogen, which is notoriously difficult, right? So, so many issues that we need to think through. But one, one issue that I learned from my days in digital technologies that I would really encourage us to think about is sort of, I saw this because Europe really uh, had a very difficult time with the data economy because, as you know, because of the data protection, a very sort of restricted use of data was only made possible. So, I worked on the artificial intelligence strategy at the time. And artificial intelligence was the flavor of the day. Everyone said, we want to be leaders in artificial intelligence. And I said, that's not going to happen. Because, you know, if you cannot work with data, you, you, you know, where does the intelligence in AI come from? It comes from volumes of data, right, that you can aggregate. And I feel the same here. We want to be leaders in green hydrogen, but we've been really slow for many years in the rollout of renewables. Well, I'm sorry, you know, I mean, this is just sort of a reality check. And from a public policy perspective, I would very much encourage understanding sort of a cascading effect. Uh, that technologies can have, where new technologies build on an old or mature technology. And I think we don't sufficiently build that into our thinking, into our strategies. And what about the climate
0: issue? Where are you on that? Optimistic, pessimistic? Pessimistic.
1: Optimistic, because you have to be optimistic. And I believe that the way to make progress is to lead essentially a race to the top, is to demonstrate that clean technologies are safer, better, make us more resilient. And that's the game that I'm in.
0: And finally, what one piece of advice would you give to our listeners?
1: Just to understand that the world is changing in profound ways, uh, to, to really keep your eyes wide open, to understand that no issue may be just uh, to not look at issues just from a unidimensional perspective. I always used to tell my team, look at every issue from a 360 degree perspective because nothing is what it seems anymore. And this is what I always try to encourage. So also stress test my own assumptions constantly.
0: Sounds very sensible. Well, thank you, Anne. That was absolutely fascinating. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. Forward Thinking is hosted by Janet Bush and me, Michael Chui. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, or review us wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations
0: do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.